0: السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يحتج الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله Sullahuta Ada, wa Wada, Adihi wa Sahbi, Obaraka was Sulla mit Sleeman, Kathiran Kathira. Ama Badu Faud will lay him, him so. in a Shaitanir regime, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, in Allah, Womala, Ikatahu, Yisoluna, Adan Nabia, Yuhaladina, Aman, Mussulla, Adihi was Sully Mut Sleeman. Allah, whom Sulla Ada, Mohammed in Wada, Ada Ibrahim. Wada Ali Ibrahima in the Kahnidun Majid. Lahum Mabarik, Ada Mohammedin, Wada Ali Mohammed Mabarak, Ada Ibrahim, Wada Ali Ibrahima in the Kahnidun Majid. Respects and listeners, Salam Alaikum Rahatullah Ibrakatu. We gather for the fourth and final part of. the study and commentary of the famous hadith of Jibreel, السلام, related by many authors, and the narration which I have been relating to you and commenting on from the very beginning is the narration of Imam Muslim, rahmatullahi in his sahih. Allow me to recite the hadith again once more and translate it. We've covered most of it. We just have a few sentences left towards the end. So Abdullah ibn Umar, Imam Muslim, rahmatullahi, lay, relates with his chain from Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Umar, radiyallahu anhumah, who relates from his father. He says that my father, Umar ibn Khattab, radiyallahu related to me, he said, بينما نحن عند رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ذات يوم اطلع علينا رجل شديد بياض الثياب شديد سواد الشعر لا يرى عليه أثر السفر ولا يعرفه منا أحد حتى جلس إلى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فأسند ركبتيه إلى ركبتيه وضع كفيه على فخذيه وقال يا محمد اخبرني عن الإسلام قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الإسلام أن تشهد الله لا إله إلا الله وأن محمد رسول الله وتقيم الصلاة وتؤتي الزكاة وتصوم رمضان وتحج البيت إن استطاعت إليه سبيلا قال صدقت قال فاعجبنا له يسأله ويصدقه قال فأخبرني عن الإيمان قال أن تؤمن بالله وملائكته وكتبه ورسله واليوم الآخر وتؤمن بالقدر خيره وشره قال صدقت قال فأخبرني عن الإحسان قال أن تعبد الله كأنك تراه فإن لم تكن تراه فإنه يراك قال فأخبرني عن الساعة قال من مسؤول عنها بأعلم من السائل قال فأخبرني عن أمارتها قال أن تلد الأمة ربتها وأن ترى الحفاة العرات العالة رعاء الشاء يتطاولون في البنيان قال ثم انطلق فلبثت مليا حَتَّى قَالَ atadri عُمَرَ أَتَدْرِي مَنِ السَّائِلِ قُلْتُ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَعْلَمْ قَالَ فَإِنَّهُ جِبْرِيلَ أَتَاكُمْ يُعَلِّمُكُمْ دِينَكُمْ أو كَمَا قَالَ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ I narrate with a continuous and uninterrupted chain from me to Iman Muslim, rahimahullah, who narrates from, with his chain from Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhumah, who says my father Umar ibn al told me that once we were seated, once on a day, we were seated with the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when suddenly a man appeared of intense white clothes and intense black hair. There was no sign of journeying on him, but nor did any of us recognize him until he came and sat before the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and attached his knees to the knees of the Messenger. And then he placed his hands on his thighs. And then he said, O oh Muhammad, tell me about Islam. So the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, Islam is that you testify that there is no God except Allah and that Muhammad is Allah's Messenger. And that you establish salah and you give zakah and that you fast Ramadan and that you perform the pilgrimage of the house if you can find a path to it. So the man said you have spoken the truth. So Umar ibn Khattab said that we marveled at him. He asks the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam and then he ratifies the answer of the messenger. The man then said, tell me about faith, iman. So the Prophet ﷺ said, iman is that you believe in Allah and in his angels and in his books and his messengers. And that you believe, and in the final day. And that you believe in qadr, fate or predestiny. Both it's good and it's bad. The man then said, you have spoken the truth. He then said, tell me about Ihsan. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Ihsan is that you worship Allah as though you see him. And if you do not see him, then indeed he sees you. So the man said, tell me about the Prophet said, the one being questioned has no more knowledge of this than the questioner himself. So the man said, tell me about its sign. So the Messenger of Allah said, its sign is that the maid shall give birth to her master. And that you shall see, barefooted, unclothed, herdsmen, sorry, shepherds of sheep and goats and flocks, competing with one another in buildings. Umar said that the men then walked away. So I waited for a while. Then the Prophet said to me, "O oh Umar, do you know who the questioner was? So I said, Allah and his Messenger know best. So the Prophet said, indeed he was Jibreel. He came to you to teach you your religion. This is the narration of Imam Muslim alayhi, in his Sahih and that's the translation of the very Arabic of the hadith which I recited earlier. Now I've commented on most of this hadith so I won't repeat any part of it. The last sentence where we ended the previous session was when the Prophet was asked about Ihsan. So the Prophet said in reply that Ihsan is that you worship Allah as though you see him, And if you do not see him, then that he, indeed, he sees you. And I explained this whole sentence and its connection with Islam and Iman from the previous sentences of the hadith. I elaborated on the very concept of Ihsan as well and how it can be, how seeing Allah is to be understood and how the knowledge that Allah sees us, which is slightly inferior to the higher grade of witnessing Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la, which is a rank of mushahada. I've explained all of this. I also mentioned that even though the Prophet says, as though you see Allah, that is there is no suggestion because immediately he says thereafter, but if you do not see him, and indeed that's the case, that in the dunya no one can see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah believe that owing to verses of the Qur'an and many categorical and clear hadith Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala will be seen by his creation in a manner that's befitting Allah's majesty in the hereafter. So the vision of Allah, seeing Allah with one's eyes, will take place in the akhirah, in the hereafter. And we learn that from many hadith and also from verses of the Qur'an. And that will be a vision with eyes. Now how that will happen, what will be its modality, its reality, Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. But we learn from hadith, from all categorical, authentic hadith related by many authors, that the Prophet pointed to the moon and told the Sahaba عنهم, that do you jostle with one another? in attempting to see the moon. So they said, of course not, ya Rasulullah." So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, so in this way you shall see your Lord in the hereafter. Now, we can't judge anything relating to the afterlife with this world. And even some of the things that have been mentioned about the hereafter, in terms of fruits, Allah mentions fruits in the Quran related to the hereafter. Yet no fruit of Jannah can be or is similar, or rather, I should say it the other way around no fruit of the world is similar or even approaching the fruits of Jannah, though they may share the same name as far as we are concerned, all of these descriptions of the Akhirah, of the life, of the second life, of the afterlife, all of these descriptions are mere approximations simply to facilitate our understanding, to help us, to ease and guide us towards some understanding of that thing, otherwise its reality will be completely different. And if that can be said for small things, in fact the truth is, the water of the world, the water of Jannah is different to the water of the world. The the milk of Jannah, which Allah mentions in the Qur'an, the honey of Jannah, all of these are very different to the water, the milk, and the honey (coughs) of the dunya. They share the same name. And, And to some degree there are similarities, but these are approximations for us to simply get some idea, some approximation, some appreciation of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has kept in store for us. Otherwise, the Prophet sallallahu has said, مَا رَأَتْ وَلَا أُذنٌ That Allah has promised and prepared for his servants. Such things that no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard. And in fact, nor has the thought ever passed through someone's heart and mind. So, if this can be said of little things, then what of the greatest thing, which is Ru'yatullah, the seeing of Allah, the vision of Allah in the hereafter, it cannot be judged by vision and by sighting in this world so the ahlu sunnah wal jamaah believe that the believers will see allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the akhirah and there are other groups in islam that actually deny even the, vi- the vision of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the akhirah let alone in the dunya but the ahlu sunnah wal jamaah who believe in ru'yatullah in the seeing of Allah in the hereafter, in the, in the afterlife. Even they deny the vision of Allah in the world, in the dunya. It's just not possible. But moving on from that, having replied to the question, what is Ihsan? Umar radiallahu anhu relates that the man then said, tell me about the final hour. Tell me about the hour. And the hour means the final hour of judgment. The reckoning. قِيَامَة So the Prophet said مَن مَسْؤُولُ عَنْهَا بِأَعْلَمَ That the one being questioned has no more knowledge of it than the questioner himself. That's a very eloquent and comprehensive answer. And it tells us so much. Towards the end of the hadith we learn that Jibreel alayhi salam, the Prophet wasallam, said, indeed he is Jibreel who came to teach you your religion. And so, and in one narration we learn that the Prophet wasallam said, he came to teach you your religion because you wouldn't ask. Because remember I mentioned at the beginning, Sahaba was seated and no one asked the Prophet anything. So salam asked him certain questions to which the Prophet gave detailed replies. He asked him about Islam, he gave a reply. He asked him about Iman, he replied in detail. He then asked him about Ihsan, again, to which he replied. Later, he asks him about the signs of the Day of Reckoning, the signs of the final hour. Again, the Prophet ﷺ replies. But here, Jibreel ﷺ asks him about the hour, i.e. the timing of the hour. When is the final hour? And the Prophet's replies, the one being questioned has no more knowledge of this than the questioner himself. That in itself is a lesson. What Jibreel was doing is telling everyone, informing everyone. Since some of the Sahaba although not in that particular gathering, but on previous occasions had asked the Prophet ﷺ, when is the hour? When is the final hour? So Jibreel alayhi salam asked that question simply to illustrate a point to all of the listeners, and that point is that all the other questions are relevant and are suitable and they should be asked, but this question is inappropriate and shouldn't be asked. Because when even the leader of the angels poses this question, and the leader of all the messengers and prophets replies by saying, you do not know, I do not know, you are the questioner, I am the one being questioned, and I, the one being questioned, has no more knowledge of this than even you, the questioner, then that shows that if even the leader of the messengers and the leader of all the angels have no knowledge whatsoever of the timing and the arrival of the final hour, then such a question and its discussion is inappropriate for anyone else of creation. So that in itself is a lesson Jibreel was demonstrating something, which is that this is an inappropriate question, and truly. On one occasion, a man came to the Prophet. وسلم, as I said, the Sahaba were wont to ask him about the final hour of judgment. When will it be? When will its arrival be? On one occasion, the Prophet وسلم, was asked by a man, When is the final hour? His reply was beautiful. The man said, O Messenger of Allah, when is the hour? And the Messenger's immediate retort was, وَمَاذَا عَدَتَّ لها and what have you prepared for it? No discussion about when. He said, what have you prepared for it? And we learn from other narrations that the Prophet when he was asked of the same incident, that Jibreel said to him, when is the hour? Prophet said, the, question, the one being questioned has no more knowledge of this, no greater knowledge of this than the one who is questioning him. Then the Prophet said, la hunna this is one of five things which no one knows except allah and then the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam recited the final verse of surah luqman inna lillahi indahu ilm as-sa'a wa yunzilul ghayth wa ya'lamu ma fil arham wa ma tadri nafsun maadha taksibu ghadan wa ma tadri nafsun bi ayyi tamut inna allaha alimun khabir allah says indeed allah with him is the knowledge of the hour. Number one, we nasilul ghayf, and it is He who sends down the rain. And three, we yadumu ma fil arham, and He knows what is in the wounds. Four, umma taddri nafsum ma da taksib al and no soul knows what it shall do tomorrow. Umma taddri nafsum bi ayy ardh intamud. Number five, and no soul knows in which land or on which earth, which part of the earth it shall die. Indeed, Allah is all knowing, all aware. So the Prophet sallallahu recited, he, he said to Jibreel alayhi salam. The one questioned has no more knowledge of this than the questioner himself, and this is, fi This is one of five things of which no one knows anything except Allah. So only Allah has that knowledge. And then the Messenger وسلم, said one of five things, and then he recited the verse of Surah Luqman, the final verse, which mentions all five things, and the verse begins with, this very point, Inna اللَّهَ الساعة, That indeed Allah with him is the knowledge of the hour. No one else has that knowledge. No one. Not even the Messenger Wasallam. Not even Jibreel Only Allah. And the second thing, and it is he, Allah, who sends down rain. Again, this is something which only Allah knows. And people often ask the immediate question that rises in our minds, what are the weather forecasts and predictions? These are forecasts. These are predictions. And from the time of prediction till the time of actuality, even though it may be brief, there are so many variables that things could change drastically. For better or for worse, in an instant. And it's about whether that we have the term the butterfly effect, where the fluttering of the wings of a butterfly in some remote part elsewhere has some impact on the air, the wind, on atmospheric, which eventually leads to changes as a cumulative effect on atmospheric pressure on the direction of the blowing wind the air which all has a res- uh, some impact every action has a reaction and just like ripples in the water and gravitational waves everything has an effect so these are predictions these are forecasts. And weather experts, meteorologists, repeatedly insist that these are merely forecasts, these are calculations, predictions. And it's not like they never had people forecasting weather then as well, I don't mean through astrological means, but it's quite simple. Those who have a, greater, a better line of sight. And those who are at a greater height, even then, so if people were in the valley, just as the Prophet ﷺ, when he gathered the Quraysh, and specifically members of his extended family, his clan, and then he said to them, oh my people, he stood over Safa, and he said to them, oh my people, if I tell you, because he was higher up, If I tell you that beyond this ridge, there is an enemy approaching, would you believe me or not? Would you take my word for it or not? And they immediately replied that, oh Muhammad, we have never known you to lie. So quite simply, the Prophet was standing at at a higher elevation, which enabled him to see what the others below him in the valley could not see. And so if someone is on a mountain top or a hill, or at some elevation, and he or she is able to see clouds gathering and building up and rolling towards them from a distance, that person can come and tell the village and or anyone who is willing to listen, that look, it's going to rain. They have no knowledge because they don't, they've never had the ability to see that far, and he had that ability, and so he forecasts rain in a short while. Even then, it could prove to be true, it could prove to be false. So, the further a person sees, it doesn't matter. It has no impact whatsoever on the reality of this verse. That we نزل ghayth, it is he, Allah, who sends down rain. If you have... You can have weather forecasts for a day, for a few hours, for a few months, it doesn't matter. These are simply meteorological calculations and predictions which are liable to drastic and immediate change. And all meteorologists accept this. Despite possessing some of the world's most powerful computers, in fact, many of the world's supercomputers are either used in defense or in meteorology, in weather forecasting. So, despite this huge manpower and computing power, weather forecasts and predictions can still go drastically wrong. And we see evidence of that all the time. When Allah says, وَيْنَزْزِلُ Ghayth," and it is he who sends down rain, that means the absolute knowledge of now of the past the present and the future that rests with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ma tasqutu min waraqatin illa ya'lamuha wa la habatin fi dhulumati al-ard wa la ratbin wa la yabis illa fi mubin Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says no leaf falls except that Allah knows it a single leaf anywhere on earth cannot fall without allah subhanahu wa ta'ala having all-encompassing comprehensive categorical absolute knowledge of that leaf falling and not just knowledge but it cannot happen without the will without the mashia and the irada without the will and the wish of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that's the same with rain, وَيَنَزِّلُ الْغَيْثِ And this leads me to the next, the third thing in the verse, وَيَعْلَمُ ma fil arham. He, Allah, knows what is in the wombs. Again, ultrasound scans have no bearing on Allah's knowledge. Although it's traditionally believed, that it was believed about the people of the past, that they had no knowledge of the gender of the fetus and the child in the womb, and it's only through modern technology and especially ultrasound scans that we are able to see the gender of the baby in the womb. Although this is commonly believed, it's not entirely true. It's said of the Arabs that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed Humanity with intelligence. And it's not just today. Of your trackers, Arab trackers in the desert they, a simple Bedouin was so skilled in certain things that he could actually track animals, small or large camels or horses or even goats and sheep for hundreds of miles, for many, many days. And that's in the wilderness, in the deserts. They were skilled trackers. And it's said of some of the Arabs that again, they were such experts in certain types of medicine and knowledge that they could tell the gender of the fetus in the womb, by the manner in which the pregnant mother walked. So the style and the mannerisms and the gait and the bodily stance of the mother, of the pregnant mother, would betray the gender of the fetus. We may scoff at such things and we may dismiss them, but... We should be humble in our knowledge. And this is true for all branches. You may have heard of Greek fire. Greek fire was a weapon, a military weapon, employed by the Greeks on their ships. And this was 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago. And they employed it in their warfare into ships warfare in the Mediterranean. This was known as Greek fire. And this, that technology was 2,000 years ago. It's disappeared. And despite all the modern day technology and wizardry, and again, defense is at the forefront and at the helm of technological advances. Despite all the technology and modern scientific knowledge, they have been unable to recreate Greek fire. So, And there are other technologies as well that the Chinese had. We're talking about thousands of years ago. Look at the pyramids. They may seem simple. But the mathematical precision, the accuracy, the engineering, many people believe that they cannot be replicated even now. Their connection with astronomy, not astrology, but astronomy, with precise astronomical calculations, the same with Babylon. So we may, in fact, the Babylonians we were predicting eclipses precisely a long time ago. It's not just possible now with modern-day astronomy and knowledge, but even then. So we may scoff at such things, but gradually a time comes when we eventually realise that there was some wisdom, there was some truth in what... Not everything, I'm not saying in everything, but in lots of things. Another example is... In medicine, it was often believed that people who would concoct medicine, they would tell, medical practitioners would tell people, take this medicine on the 10th, 11th, 12th and 13th of the month, or in the moonlit nights, 13th, 14th and 15th, or avoid it in these nights and only take it towards the end of the month, the lunar month. And again, this was dismissed as old wives' tales. And yet, it's only now that it's being discovered that there is a very strong connection with, between plants and the moon. And the gravitational pull and the effect of the moonlight on certain plants And the impact that it has on these plants, on their medicinal properties, and in fact on the chemicals within the plants, so they can be effective or they lose their efficacy and their effectiveness at certain times of the month because of the gravitational pull, the weakness or the strength of the gravitational pull, and the strength of the moonlight. And that's now accepted as scientific fact. But again, for so long it was all dismissed. So I'm not saying everything is correct, but we, we should be more humble in our knowledge and in our understanding. And we can't just dismiss everything and scoff at it. So when I say the Arabs, had some of the Arabs, and not just the Arabs but others, had the ability of determining the gender of the fetus, maybe not always accurately, but well enough for it to be passed down through generations. They were able to determine the fetus of the child, simply, sorry, the gender of the fetus, or the gender of the child in the womb, by the manner in which the mother walked. So none of this has any bearing on Allah saying, وَيَعْلَمُ مَا فِي and he knows what is in the wombs. Because Allah knows what's in the womb, and the gender of the fetus. Long before, it develops at the time of conception, even before conception. Allah knows everything. His knowledge is precise and absolute. وَمَا The fourth thing, fourth thing, and he does not know. Sorry, and no, one, no soul knows what it shall do tomorrow, indeed. We plan ahead. And no soul knows in which land it shall die. Allahu Akbar. We do not know where we shall be buried. We do not know where we will be tomorrow. When um, my father, rahmatullahi alayhi, passed away, and he was in hospital for the for the final week, and he was ill, he would recite this verse of Surah al repeatedly, again and again and again, raising his hand. He was very weak. And even though he was often sedated, but when he would wake up, he was very alert. And he would often recite this verse, repeatedly, over and over again. And he would actually strain to recite this verse, physically. But he would do it. إِنَّ اللَّهَ عِنْدَهُ عِلْمُ السَّاعِهُ وَيَنَزِّلُ الْغَيْثُ وَيَعْلَمُ مَا فِي Till the end and especially he would raise his hand in these two final sentences <laughs> that no soul knows what it shall do tomorrow and no soul knows where in which land it shall be buried it's very true we plan so far ahead for ourselves and death lies at our feet so no soul knows what it shall do tomorrow no one knows. We may have plans. Or in which land, in which part of the earth it shall die. Where we will all die. Where we will be buried. Where? We do not know where we will, whether we will be buried at land or at sea. How we will die. When we will die. Where we will die. And where we will be buried. None of us know. Only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these five things are those that Allah has exclusive and absolute knowledge of. No one else, not even the Messenger of Allah, وسلم, or Jibreel, السلام, had knowledge of any of these five things. And that's why the Messenger وسلم, recited this verse. Because the very first words are in Allah عِلْمُ السَّاعَةِ that indeed with Allah is the hour, is the knowledge of the final hour. And thus Jibreel salam, when he said to him, tell me about the final hour, this was his reply, no, you do not know, I do not know, and then he recited the verse. This shows us that we should not be delving in such questions. Then the Prophet sallallahu wasallam, was asked, according to this hadith, that tell me about its sign. But we learn from other narrations that the Prophet sallallahu wasallam, actually said to him, that the, question, the, the one being questioned has no more knowledge of this than the questioner himself, but I will tell you of its signs. So then Jibreel alayhi salam said, yes, tell me. So it was actually the Prophet sallallahu who offered to tell him the signs. So he told him that, I have no knowledge, nor do you, of the timing of the hour, but I can tell you about the signs of the hour. So Jibreel alayhi salam said, yes, tell me that. Now, from the collection of a hadith, ultimately, although in this narration, only two signs are mentioned, but from the collection of a hadith, three signs are mentioned. And what are those three signs? The two mentioned in this hadith, and the third one, which is related, Prophet said, that the signs are, أنتلد الأمت ربتها That the maid, the lady, the woman shall give birth to her master. Number one. Number two. And that you shall see the shepherds competing with one another in buildings. And the third sign, which isn't mentioned in this particular narration, but is mentioned in the same hadith in authentic narrations, is that the Prophet said. And that you shall see, unclothed, barefooted, unrefined, deaf, sorry, yes, deaf and dumb people becoming the kings of the world, the rulers of the world. Muluk al-ard. These are the words of Hadith. So that's the third sign. In fact, it's the second sign. The first sign is that the maid shall give birth to her master. The second sign is that you will see unclothed, unrefined, barefooted, deaf and dumb people Herders becoming the rulers of the world, Muruk al Ard the kings of the world, kings of the earth. And the third sign is and that you shall see again barefooted, unclothed, poor, shepherds of flocks, yet competing with one another in buildings. So the first sign. That the maid shall give birth to her mother. There are many explanations of this wording in the hadith, but I won't go into any of them because the simplest and most straightforward explanation is as follows: The maid shall give birth to her mother, to her master. The maid meaning a woman, the bondswoman of Allah. So the maid, meaning a woman, shall give birth to her master. What it simply means is that the mother will give birth to a child who will become the master of the child and she will become a slave unto the child. That's the simplest meaning. A time will come when parents, especially mothers, Will be disregarded, will be treated in a very dismissive, contemptuous manner. Their rights will not be fulfilled, in fact, their rights will be violated. And rather than children being the coolness of the parents' eyes, children will become a burden, and not just a burden, but a torment. They will, the, one's own children will be one's own tormentors. And the mother, and even possibly the father, although the, the wording in the hadith is the mother, but it refers to both parents, the mother will become a slave to her own child. And the child, when it grows up, the man or woman will treat his own mother in a very exploitative manner. To simply fulfill his or her wants and needs and desires to be used, abused, exploited, and then to be shunned and forgotten once their usefulness has expired. And then to be turned to again when there is a need. Times will change. Traditionally, even amongst the Arabs, even before Islam, parents meant a lot. They really did. We may speak about the Arabs that they lived in the, in the days of jahiliyyah, in the days of ignorance. Yet remarkably, even in their days of jahiliyyah, they had such respect for their parents, for their mothers, for their fathers, and love. I'll give you some examples. Abdul Muttalib. Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's grandfather. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's uncles, there were so many of them, and Abdul Muttalib was regarded as the chieftain of the Quraysh, a man of great honor, nobility, and standing. He would sit in the shade of the Kaaba, and he had a, he had a divan and cushions placed out for him, and he would recline against the wall of the Ka'bah, under a canopy. And his sons, all adults, would sit in front of him. Mainly adults, with the exception of Hamza. They would all sit in front of him. And despite being his sons, his own sons, his own flesh and blood, and this was before the revelation of the Qur'an, before the coming of Islam, not one of his sons... Ever had the courage or the audacity or the lack of manners to sit in his place. <laughs> to sit on the same cushions and the bedding and the divan next to the Kaaba, not one of them. And nor would they allow anyone else. When the Prophet was a child, he would come <laughs> and sit on that next to Abdul Muttalib or on the same divan, on the same couch next to the kaaba the uncles would try to shoo him away when he was a child because they knew that no one had the right to sit there, no one. Abdul Muttalib would say to them that leave him alone, he can sit. And then stroking Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he would say, this son of mine will have a great state in the future. So... Again, what the story shows is that despite not having the culture and the teachings of the Qur'an, even then, they had immense respect and reverence for their parents. Even Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Saloon, the leader of the hypocrites in Medina, his father was a hypocrite, the leader of the hypocrites. He abused the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And when the caravan returned to Medina after Ghazbatu bin al Mustaliq, Prophet was approached by Abdullah, the son of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn al-Salul. So the father was called Abdullah and he was a leader of the hypocrites. And the son was also called Abdullah. So, Abdullah the son came to the Messenger وسلم, and said to him, O Messenger of Allah, I have heard what my father has said about you. And Abdullah the son was a sincere believer, just as other family members were. And he knew that his father was a hypocrite and the leader of the hypocrites, and yet, Abdullah ibn Abdullah ibn Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul's words to the Messenger were, he began his words with, with with the statement, O Messenger of Allah, Aws khazraj meaning the tribes of Medina, all know that there is no one more faithful and loyal and obedient There is no son more faithful and more loyal and more obedient to the father than I am to my father. But, O Messenger of Allah, if you command me... And then Abdullah, the son, went on to say uh, a few more things. But he prefaced his statement with the words that, O Messenger of Allah... The whole of Medina knows that there is no son more dutiful to his father than I, Abdullah, am dutiful, loyal, and obedient to my father, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, who he knew, and the messenger knew, and all of the uh, Muslims of Medina knew that he was not just a hypocrite, but the leader of the hypocrites. What that shows again is that in the Arab culture, whether it was Mecca or Medina, There was great love and respect for one's parents. And this was actually part of their culture. And this has remained the case in many parts of the world. Even today, in many rural parts where there is no religion, no Islam, none whatsoever. There is no concept of old people's homes. Why? I'm not making any comments on it. All I'm saying is that there Every family looks after their elderly till death with love, with care, with devotion, and with respect. In many cultures, the children, even then before, the children were warriors. The sons were warriors, battle hardened men. And this was the case in Arabia as well. But they were like mice before their parents before their fathers, loving, caring, affectionate towards their mothers too. In fact, Islam had no part to play in that, because the Qur'an had not yet been revealed, and yet times change. And that's why in the Qur'an, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la has emphasised the rights of parents so much. <coughs> رَبُّكَ أَلَّا تَعْبُدُوا إِلَّا إِيَّاهُ بِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا And your Lord has decreed that you shall worship no one but him. And he has decreed that you shall be good, do good to your parents. So Allah has placed the rights of the parents immediately after his own rights. Allah has placed one's duty, loyalty and faithfulness and one's khidmah and service to one's parents, immediately after one's service to Allah. Serve Allah, then serve your parents. And that means in every way. There's so much that can be said about this. There are so many warnings for those who disobey their parents. So many warnings for those who trouble their parents. Allah says in the Qur'an that e- even when they reach old age, إِمَّا Now even if one of them or both of them reach old age with you. And why old age? Because when we are young, we are weak and helpless and dependent. And our parents are able, capable and strong and we grow older, they then lapse into the second childhood. We then become mature, capable, able, responsible, strong. And they become weak, helpless, and dependent. So Allah's command is that just as they looked after you cared for you, loved you, when you were a child, when they lapse into their childhood for a second time, for seniority, and especially with senility, is a second childhood. And when people become old, what happens? In their old age, and this is true for, for lots of people, the body breaks down, the mind begins to crumble, people, it's natural, we become forgetful, we become forgetful, we become weak, we are unable to do those mental or physical tasks that we could do before, we become very dependent and we become irritable, and not just irritable, we irritate others, just like children can become a source of irritation. Because they do things without understanding. When we grow old, we end up doing things without understanding. It's a fact. Allah mentions this more than once in the Quran. Allah says, وَمَن نُعَمِّرْهُ فِي الْخَلْقِ أَفَلَا Surah Yasin, and whoever we advance in age, نُنَكِّسُ فِي الْخَلْقِ we flip him in creation. Meaning everything enters a decline. Everything begins begins to deteriorate. We go on a downfall. What, don't they understand? So we change for the worse. We deteriorate physically, mentally, in every way. So we will forget. We will, parents, especially in their old age, they forget. They make bad choices. They make bad judgments. They aren't as capable as they used to be before. All of this means that they will end up irritating, annoying, burdening their own children. That's a given fact. So when Allah says if one of them or both of them reach old age, even in their second childhood, even in their senility, even when they become a source of irritation, and annoyance, when they fail you and disappoint you, when they say things out of turn, when they say things without realizing, when they lack good judgment, even in, with all of these weaknesses and defects and drawbacks and these pressures on you as sons and daughters,, Uf, do not even say "uft." do not rebuke them and say a good noble word to them, Allahu Akbar. And that's insinuity. that's insinuity. We live in an age only, SubhanAllah, this morning I was reading an article about homeless people. Here in this country, And one of the articles, one of the statements was by a young lady who said, I still speak to my mum. I still talk to my mum. But she's homeless. So the mother knows she's homeless. And they are still in communication. But the daughter lives rough on the streets and she's an adult. And the mother lives in her own home. And they're still communicating. Of course, this is the other way around, where the daughter is homeless and sleeping rough on the street, but the mother is at home. The point I wish to make is, things have become so different to what they should be. So far removed from these noble teachings of Islam, of religion, and of many cultures, that... Parents find themselves on the streets, children find themselves on the streets. There is such selfishness that one's own parents are treated as strangers and children, one's own children, are treated as strangers. This is undoubtedly one of the signs of the Sah, the hour. What these three signs show, as I will explain, is that things will flip, things will become abnormal, things will turn. Truth will become false, falsehood will become truth. Lies will become the truth, truth will become the lies. In another hadith, we learn that the Prophet wasallam said, a time will come when the untrustworthy one shall be treated as trustworthy. The trustworthy shall be dismissed as untrustworthy. The lie will be regarded as truthful. The honest will be regarded as a liar. i.e. things will flip, things will change. Speaking about parents... There is so much mentioned in the hadith and in the verses of the Qur'an about one's duty, one's love and loyalty to one's parents. Of course, um, this is another topic in itself, and I must say there is one thing, however. People are often confused about this, because one, of course, one has to be loving, caring, affectionate and dutiful to one's parents. This khidma of one's parents and this love for one's parents is not absolute. In the sense, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Do parents have a right over their children's money, adult children's money that they have earned? No. Imam Bukhari, he relates a hadith, and I've explained this in my commentary of the tajid al sarih that one of the Sahaba عنهم, left some sadaqah in the masjid to be distributed. So the son came along later unknowingly and he received part of that sadaqah as part of the distribution. So the father found out later that the sadaqah which I left in the masjid for distribution, my own son received a share of it. So the father feared that my sadaqah is not valid, i.e. he will not be rewarded for it. And he believed of his son that he has no right over that wealth. He's not the one I intended to give. I wanted to distribute it to others. So he told the son, "You, you can't take it, you have to give it back. And the son said, I'm keeping it. The son was a sahabi, the father was a sahabi. So the son went to the Prophet ﷺ. So he took the case to the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ told the father, you will get your reward for sadaqah. Because he is, even though you didn't intend to give it to him, of course, they both gave their arguments. The Prophet wasallam said, you didn't, Of course, she didn't intend to give it to him, but your niyah of sadaqah is valid and you will be rewarded for it because it went to a rightful recipient. And since he is deserving of it, he can have it. So the Prophet pleased both the son and the father. Anyway, if you remember many years ago, when I explained that hadith, as part of the commentary, I mentioned that the ulama actually derive a mas'alah from here, which is that is it lawful for a son to take the father to court? Of course, we're speaking about in an Islamic jurisdiction the, the discussion of the ulama when they say court is uh, is it permissible for the son to go to the qadi for judgment and seek a judgment and to simply raise a claim against one's own father? So ultimately the ulama can see that it is. It may not be a good thing, but ultimately it is. And this hadith, this incident is one of the arguments and one of the proofs. So it's not absolute in the sense that do parents have a right over their ch- children's money? No, can a father say to the son one day, give me your money, to the son or the daughter, no. Can a father say to the son, divorce your wife? This is a common masala. It really is. Since uh, daughters-in-law and mothers-in-law get on so well, <laughs> they, this masala often arises where, because of their mutual affection and love, the father is left in a predicament, because the mother says, I like her so much, I want her rid of, totally, so get rid of her. The father feels pressured by the wife. The father then pressures the son, or both parents pressure the son that divorce your wife. It happens in our culture. So sons often say that, what do we do? Do I live with my parents? Do I move out? And then parents often on this occasion somehow miraculously become w- very conversant of all the verses and the hadith about duty to one's parents. And everyone seems to recall the story of Umar ibn al-Khattab anhu. Umar an told his son, Abdullah ibn Umar to divorce his wife because he didn't like. He did not want Abdullah ibn Umar to be married to that wife. So Umar an said to him, divorce your wife. And eventually he did. So everyone seems to recall that. Fathers tend to recall that and say, Umar an told Abdullah ibn Umar to divorce his wife. And Abdullah ibn Umar divorced his wife. So you divorce your wife because I'm telling you. Often when I'm asked this question, this is a very simple explanation. Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhumah. He didn't divorce his wife. Again, he went to the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He didn't listen to his father straight away. He went to the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to him, if your father is telling you, then divorce her. But there are two considerations here. One is that as you can see, the father's demand, that Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhumah divorce his wife wasn't listened to by Abdullah ibn Umar until he went to the messenger sallallahu and then the prophet sallallahu himself added his words to that suggestion because what did he say he said to him if your father is telling you then divorce her so that's one consideration the prophet sallallahu ultimately told him to divorce her. So he didn't really divorce her because of Umar radiallahu so much so, per se, rather because of the Prophet endorsement of the demand of Umar ibn khattab radiyallahu That's the first consideration. The second consideration, Umar radiallahu an was Umar. Umar was Umar. Umar radiallahu an. at times gave judgment about certain things, like on the occasion of Badr after their return to Medina, and in fact before their return to Medina, in which Umar was correct, and the Prophet and Abu Bakr were not as correct as Umar ibn al-Khattab. And he acknowledged that, the Messenger acknowledged that Umar's judgment was better than his own judgment, and the judgment of Abu Bakr And Umar said, I have agreed with my Lord in this, in that, in this, and there are so many things in which Umar agreed with Allah, and that was out of respect in the sense that in reality, Umar made a judgment, or he made a statement, and Allah revealed verses of the Qur'an, or sent a revelation to the Prophet وسلم, ratifying what Umar had said, or done, or judged. So, but out of respect, he didn't say, my Lord agreed with me, he said, I agreed with my Lord. And that wasn't in one thing, or two things, but in so many things. That was Umar ibn al-Khattab, a man of such sagacity, of wisdom, of foresight, of perception, of intuition. As Umar ibn al-Khattab, whose wisdom and whose intuition, even the Messenger of Allah, and and all of the Sahaba, attested to, if he says to his son, Divorce your wife, and that's seconded by the messenger of Allah. How can that be used as evidence for some daddy today <laughs> telling his son divorce your wife because mommy's telling me? <laughs> so it's not absolute, and this is another topic. I won't go into it any further. But one of the signs of Yawm Al Qiyamah is that the. Woman, i.e., a lady, will give birth to her own master. She will become a slave to her own child. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the ability to understand the rank of our parents. Allah create love and harmony between us. Allah enable us to serve our parents as they deserve and as they should be served. That's the first sign. The second sign, from other narrations of the hadith, is that you will see unclothed, barefooted. Jufat, meaning unrefined, uncultured. Unrefined. Who were the Jufat? Normally the Bedouin were referred to as Jufat. They had Jufat, meaning they were very unrefined. So you will find unclothed, unrefined, barefooted, poor, herders of camels. as sumul the words of the hadith are in another narration, A sumul bukm meaning deaf and dumb. They wouldn't be literally deaf and dumb, but rather, this was a metaphor by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa is that despite their eloquence and despite their intelligence and their ability, their choices, their judgments, their direction in life, everything about them denied and defied their supposed intelligence and articulacy. And this rendered them in reality deaf and dumb. So these deaf, dumb, unclothed, barefooted, poor, unrefined individuals, the Prophet ﷺ says, they will become mulukul ard the kings of the earth. That's the second sign. Again, this fits with the theme of what I said earlier, which is, the theme of the signs preceding the day of reckoning are, things will become flipped, everything will change. So the lowly shall become mighty, the mighty will be rendered low. That's the second sign. The third sign, one we'll mentioned in this hadith. البنيان, and that you shall see unclothed, barefooted, shepherds of flocks, shepherds of sheep, poor. Competing with one another in buildings. Now, many people do not know of the other narrations of the same hadith, and the wording in the other narrations, such as the same hadith related by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his Musnad, and by Imam ibn Hibban in his Sahih, and by others. In which the wording is, after this, after mentioning these three signs, the first one is about the maid, the woman giving birth to her master. The second one is the unclothed, barefooted, jufat, unrefined, poor, herders, who are deaf and dumb. They will become mulukul ard, the kings of the earth. And the third sign, which is connected to the second one, that the shepherds, unclothed, barefooted, poor, shepherds of flocks, of sheep and goats. They will, يتطاورون في compete with one another in buildings. So Jibreel asked the Prophet وسلم, who are they, O Messenger of Allah? Who are they? These people, who are they? The Prophet Sallallahu said, Al-Urayb, the little Arabs. This is actually the wording and in one narration, it's not little Arabs; it's just al-Arab, the Arabs. It's a narration of Imam Ibn Hibban in his Sahih, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his Musnad. The wording is categorical. What it means is it refers to the Bedouin at that time. And in fact, many ulama throughout history have used the, have looked at this hadith, studied the hadith, and spoken of their times and said, by Allah, the the prophecy of Rasulullah has already come true. That the Bedouin, in their time, were competing with one another in buildings. Again, the idea is, the theme is, everything will change. How those who were previously poor, barefooted, dressed in rags, Herders of camels, shepherds of sheep, unrefined, whom the messenger sallallahu describes as a summul buqm, deaf and dumb, how they will become mulukul ard the kings of the earth and yaddaawruna fil bunyan Throughout history the ulama have looked at this hadith and they've actually applied it to their own time. And the further we move away from Rasulullah sallallahu blessed era, then the more true, and the more applicable this hadith becomes. And the wording is actually categorically al-Arab in some narrations and al urayb meaning the diminutive of al-Arab, the little Arabs. Again, this is no comment or judgment on anyone. I'm just commenting on the hadith and the words of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Ultimately, it applies to all of us. And this is what the Messenger wasallam, feared. He mentioned, as I said last week in another talk, not related to this hadith, that it's not poverty that I fear for you. It's that I fear that the world shall be opened up for you as it was opened up for those who came before you. Then you will compete with one another in the world as they competed. And then the world shall destroy you as it destroyed them. That's what he feared. Nothing else for it will distract us from our true goal, objective and purpose. Finally, Umar ibn al-Khattab anh, says, then the Prophet sallallahu anh, then the man the man rose and left. And we learn from of the narrations that the Prophet sallallahu anh, he went, Prophet sallallahu anh, said to them, immediately bring him back to me. So the Sahaba anh, stood up, more than one of them, a group of them, and they went out in search for him but he had disappeared. There was no sign of him. No one could find him. Then they came and told the Messenger Wasallam. so he said to them, that was Jibreel salam. He came to teach you your religion. But Umar it appears that Umar had left. So immediately as Jibreel السلام, had left, Umar left. And then later, that's why he says, I waited for a while. And according to some narrations, this was three days later when the Prophet Sallallahu spoke to him individually. And he said, Oh, Umar, do you know who that was? So Umar reply was, he said, ya Umar, Do you know who the questioner was? So Umar said, Allah Allah and his messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam know best. And there's a great lesson in there for us. Allah and his Messenger know best. Just as the Prophet said earlier, the one who is being questioned has no more knowledge than the questioner himself. We should know the limits of our knowledge and understanding. We really should. The Sahaba عنهم, this was one of their favorite replies, Allahu Rasuluhu A'lam. In the farewell Hajj, you had scores of thousands of Sahaba عنهم, with Rasulullah and when he gave his speech, what did he say? He said, O oh people, Ayu يوم هذا, أي بلد هذا, Which month is this, O oh people? Which city is this, O oh people? Which day is this, O oh people? Which child did not know that they were in the vicinity of Makkah? Which child, let alone an adult, did not know that that was the month of Dhul-Hijjah, the month of Hajj. They were in Hajj. Which child did not know that? And yet, all of the Sahaba, عنهم, in their scores of thousands, replied in unison with one voice, loudly, immediately, without pause or hesitation or reservation. And what was their reply to every one of these questions? Ayu yawmin hadha, what day is this? Allahu Allah and His Messenger know best. Which month is this? Allah and His Messenger know best. Which city is this? Allah and His Messenger know best. That was a favorite reply of the Sahaba. They submitted themselves mentally to the Messenger of Allah. They humbled themselves. They disregarded their own knowledge and understanding. Before the Messenger of Allah. Because they knew that He spoke with the revelation of Allah. And that has been the tradition till today. Saying Allah and His Messenger know best is part of knowledge. <clears throat> Saying that I don't know is a sign of knowledge. For a man to say I don't know, that is a sign of knowledge. It truly is. And it's dangerous. We rush into where the Sahaba dared to tread. We, we make our comments on everything. The verses of the Quran, the Hadith, the Masail of religion. Even the Sahaba. And after the time of the Sahaba, people would go to one person and then the next and then the next and then the f- fourth, fifth, sixth. Why? Not for shopping for fatwa. They'd go to the first, but the first wouldn't say anything to them. He'd refuse to reply, he'd say, go to someone else. And then the second would say, go to a third, and the third will say, go to a fourth. The Anbiya, salam will do this on the day of reckoning. When the creation will go to each prophet, each prophet will say, this is not my day, go to him. And each messenger shall refer the whole of creation, or their representatives and the delegations, Finally, to the Messenger of Allah So, we need to humble ourselves when it comes to knowledge. This was a favorite reply of the Sahaba He said, do you know who the questioner was? He said, Allah, Rasuluhu A'lam, Allah, his Messenger, know best. So the Prophet وسلم, said, Indeed, he is Jibril, who came to teach your religion. And as I mentioned at the beginning a few weeks ago, even the Prophet did not know that this was Jibreel because he actually mentioned, we learned from other narrations that he only found out later. He said, never has Jibreel come to me in any form that I, except that I have known that it's him except on this occasion. So even the Messenger of Allah initially did not know that this was Jibreel but He came to teach your religion. How? These are the fundamentals, Islam, Iman, Ihsan, and preparation for the final hour, and becoming aware of the signs. And not all of the signs are mentioned. None of the dramatic signs are mentioned in this hadith, the more dramatic signs that are mentioned in apocalyptic signs that are mentioned in other hadith, none of them are mentioned, rather. The signs are mentioned which refer to the corruption of people's character. And that's what we need to be aware of. People love talking about the signs of the Allah. It's true. It's sad to say, but... People love to listen to and to discuss and to talk about and want speakers and ulama to talk about Dajjal and Mahdi. And Ya Juj Majuj, the gog and the magog and the beast and the signs of the hour. And there seems to be a thrill about it. It's almost like a form of entertainment. And I, I don't say that dismissively, I say it of experience. Over many, many years, I've often been approached by people who repeatedly want to discuss just these things. In fact, as I've mentioned, I uh, forget speaking about the signs of Imam Mehdi. I've actually met a few Mahdi's myself. <laughs> I really have. Meaning, that, uh, I've been approached by a number of people. And others who've tried to approach me, but, alhamdulillah, they never managed to get through to me. It's true, I mean... Uh, there have been a number of occasions where people have come looking for me, not in the bad way, but, uh, why two young lads approached some of my students and said, we're looking for, and they mentioned my name, Riyadh al haq why? They looked suspicious, so they said, why? So the two young lads, one of them said, well, he's the Mahdi and we need someone to endorse him and no one better than Sheikh. <laughs> And there was another one who's written a few books. And he's been corresponding with others. And again, he's been sending me messages, but I've never replied, where he wants to announce that he is a Mahdi. But he has to be endorsed and is looking for my endorsement. So I've met. And on one occasion, someone in another country, I went for Maghrib Salah. I prayed Maghrib, and as I was leaving the masjid for Maghrib, after Maghrib, someone approached me. A young man. as alaykum. Wa alaykum as And wallahi, this is the whole conversation. It took place in a foreign language, but this was a whole conversation. No more. And it may sound bizarre to you, but I was so accustomed to it by then. As-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum as Sir, can I ask you? Can I ask you a question? I said yes. This was at the doors of the masjid, leaving after maghrib Salah. I think I am Imam Mahdi. So I said, "That's a satanic thought." So he said, "Is it?" And I said, "Yes, it is." So he said, "Okay." Assalamualaikum. As-salam. He left the masjid. And that's the whole conversation. So, in the masjid, out of the masjid, in various locations, I've met a ruh al-quds. There's one young man who came up to me. He said, "I am ar ruh al-quds, the Holy Spirit," and he went into a lengthy discussion about how uh, the commentators of the Quran they refer to the Holy Spirit in the Quran al-ruh al-amin and ruh al-quds as being jibril alayhi and some say it's isa ibn maryam alayhi and some say it's the prophet so he actually went into a very theological discussion and it's remarkable because he doesn't he's not khayla, he's not known to actually speak that language properly and yet he went to a theological discussion with me in the masjid after asr salah about how a ruh al-quds could not be Isa ibn Maryam, and I'm sitting there wondering, how in Allah's name does this young man know about Ibn Kathir and about Qurtubi and about Baghawi and these commentators of the Qur'an, and where is he pulling all this from? And I, I was just sitting there marvelling at his knowledge about the commentators of the Qur'an, and he's saying, A al-Quds, so some people say it's Isa ibn Maryam but these the ulama say it's Isa ibn Maryam, but these are my arguments as to why Isa ibn Maryam is not ar-ruh al-quds the holy spirit some say it's the messenger sallallahu and these are my arguments as to why not and i just sat there listening to him he gave three names and he said the and some say it's jibril this is the most famous opinion of the commentators and even i dismiss that view that it's not even jibril and these are my arguments against it then, I, then he said to me, So do you know who Ar Ruhul Quds really is? It's not Jibreel, it's not Isa ibn Maryam, and it's not the Prophet. And I said, Who then? And he said, Me. <laughs> so I've met Ar al Quds, the Holy Spirit, I've met a few Mahdi. And one of them, he was doing wudu right next to me in a masjid, and he was speaking to me before as well. And he said to me, when the water falls from the tap, he said, I have certain thoughts. And I said, what are they? He said, the thoughts are, I am Dajjal. <laughs> so I've met the Dajjal, a few Mahdis, the Ruhul Quds. <coughs> So I speak of experience. For some people, this is a thrill and entertainment, the signs of the hour. The signs of the hour that the Messenger, sallallahu mentions in this hadith are not the apocalyptic ones. Rather, they are about the corruption of character. This is what should concern us. This is more applicable, more direct, more relevant. This concerns us directly. And this is what we should be concerned about. Finally, the words are, Jibreel alayhi salam came to you to teach your religion. It's vital that we gain the correct and proper understanding of our religion. And we should strive to gain knowledge and understanding. Jibreel alayhi salam came all the way in that fashion, in that manner, in that dramatic way. To encourage the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum to learn and to teach the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum and we should follow in their footsteps. This is a very famous and great hadith that ulama have said that this hadith contains so much that in fact it can be regarded as a fountainhead of religion. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us all to understand. وَسَلَّمُ عَلَىٰ عَبْدِهِ وَرَسُولِهِ نَبِيَّنَا مُحَمَّدُ وَعَلَىٰ آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ أَجْمَعِينَ سُبْحَانَكَ اللَّهُمَّ وَبِحَمْدِكَ